0: All right, if you're in uh, Roy Jr., you can go back there with David Thompson. He's in the back corner for you guys. I'm excited. David's excited about going through this passage tonight. Um, it's, a, uh, it's surprising. Not the passage, but seeing this many people in here. Because um, I heard that there was an Usher concert tonight, <laughs> and Taylor Swift's boyfriend was going to be there. So I'm surprised that you guys are here. You're just faithful. You're faithful disciples of Jesus. You're not going to be swayed by these cultural whims. That's enough about that. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 14 through 29 uh, this evening. Uh, before we read, um, I wanted to uh, read the passage. I wanted to read a song that Usher can't hold a candle to. I'm going to read it slow. Just in case, because if I said it how the original authors intended it, um, you wouldn't understand it. So I'm going to read it. There was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locusts he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. <laughs> Some of you are very familiar. I, ch- I thought about having Zach sing that for us tonight, <laughs> but I figured <laughs> we, we just didn't have the band for it. Um, uh, and in case you didn't know, those are classic lines from uh, DC Talk's Jesus freak song. Um, you can go look that up. I think that was 1997, 98 maybe, I don't know. It was a while ago. Um, But an incredible song. I was not going to rap it for you. But they were talking about John the Baptist um, because he was the ultimate Jesus freak. From the womb to the tomb, John the Baptist was a Jesus freak. Um, And so when you think about John's life, or when you reflect on John's life, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. There was really nobody like him. John's birth was foretold by an angel. Um, and who came and spoke to his father, Zechariah, in the temple. And John's conception was miraculous because Zechariah and Elizabeth could not have children. Um, she was barren, and, uh, and so that was in and of itself a miracle. And the angel said that, uh, that John would be full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. Very unique. Isaiah prophesied of John's birth and his mission 700 years before he was born. And we know that John would break the 400-year silence of uh, the Old Testament prophets because the last prophet that had spoken was Malachi. And so then here comes John, right? And so God chose John to pave the way for Jesus, the true and final prophet. And John was an interesting dude. He was a fierce dude. He preached the gospel of repentance and the kingdom of God um, with with fire, boldness, firmness. He was a forerunner of the Messiah. Uh, He was the the trailer or the marketing strategy, if you will, of God to get the word out that the main event is coming, and it's Jesus, his life, and his mission. So John, um, immediately when he saw Jesus, he knew exactly who he was, and uh, it's recorded that he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as the lyrics in the song said, John was strange because he was a little odd. How he dressed, how he ate, where he lived, how he operated. He, he was separated a, apart from society because he had a unique and specific purpose. To say that he was unique, to say he was odd is an understatement. Even Jesus himself said this about John the Baptist. Truly I tell you, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's that's the Son of God saying that. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So not only was John the Baptist the ultimate Jesus freak, he was the model of discipleship. He was completely devoted, sold out, committed to the kingdom of God. He even had disciples himself. As we learn in our passage in verse 29 tonight, um, we see that uh, John had disciples. And when Jesus came on the scene and when Jesus started his ministry, some of John's disciples started leaving him and going and following Jesus. And some people started to stir the pot. They came up to John and they were like, hey, bro, some of your followers are leaving you and they're going to follow this Jesus guy. And he's like, cool. One of his most famous statements, which should be the heartbeat the mindset, the perspective of every follower of Jesus, every disciple of Christ, is he must increase, I must decrease. If you need a memory verse, there you go. Very short, John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist was like, more of Jesus, less of John. More of Jesus, less of John. We should say that ourselves today. And as I was studying this passage, um, I couldn't help but think about discipleship. And, and so I, I had this question posed in my mind as I'm studying. What is the cost of discipleship? What's the cost of discipleship? I think we're going to see the answer tonight. I want to pray before we actually read the passage, so let's pray. Father, we praise you tonight for your word. We praise you that we could come before you tonight, and we can sing songs to you. We could sing about this amazing gospel where we have hope, where we have purpose, and meaning, and life, all because of what you have done for us, Jesus. We thank you so much for giving us your word. We know that your word is unlike anything else that we could ever read or study or memorize or share. And so I pray tonight as we dive into your word that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, speak through your word. We know that you are alive and active. We know that you're moving. We know that you're working. We trust you will do this your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So we need to understand that this is a flashback. These events have already happened. Mark's telling us something that's already transpired. So look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her. Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So um, most of the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus. Except for this little snippet right here. It's all about John the Baptist and the Herodian dynasty which is pretty weird. This is an interlude or a sandwich, if you will, right? John's beheading is wedged between Jesus's miracles and Jesus sending out the apostles, two by two, which we saw last week. Um, next week, we're gonna pick back up on, on that, starting in verse 30, where the apostles return and give a debrief to Jesus about how amazing it went and, and what amazing miracles they did and, and what, what they saw God do. In Jesus' name but discipleship isn't always amazing it's not always awesome like the apostles are going to report back to Jesus we can just tell that by looking at John the Baptist's story while some experience victories others experience defeat one commentator said that the kingdom of God advances mysteriously in the midst of rejection and even the death of God's choice servants We go as a team, and we may suffer and die as a team. We go with little, and even what we have can be taken away. Some will welcome us, but others will not only reject us, they will try to destroy us. Preaching the word and helping others may result not in our praise, but in our death. So the point of application from last week, following Jesus isn't easy, right? It it wasn't easy then. It's not easy today. And in our passage tonight, we see a question that's being raised multiple times already that we've talked about in the gospel of Mark. In verses 14 and 15, people are asking this question, who is this Jesus? And in verse 14, we see Herod, which is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas, his son, one of his sons. So Herod, Herod Antipas was a ruler in the area of Galilee learning about this Jesus. Jesus' name is spreading through the region of Galilee. Not only because of what he's done, but because he just sent out his apostles to do things in his name. And so n- now news is reaching Herod's ears, and, and he's like blown away. He's like, what's this message? What's this gospel of repentance? What's, what, what's this uh, gospel message? Not only is it an interesting message, but it's coupled with powerful signs and miracles. And so this piqued Herod's interest, and people are asking questions. Is Jesus, John the, Basset, John the Baptist, resurrected? Is that who this is? Because Jesus' ministry, message, and miracles have reached the ears of Herod, he is confused, curious, spectating. He's wondering. He's questioning what's going on. Look at verse 16. Mark's repeating the fact that Herod heard this message because Herod is scared. His conscience is pricked. He thinks his past is coming back to haunt him. Herod thinks Pastor John, who preached against his sinful life choices, has come back from the dead to get him. We learn some disturbing facts in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, this is super confusing. All right, I'm going to try to walk through it as best as possible. Before I do, I want to read this quote, because this is how confusing it is. Herodias herself was the daughter of another Herod's half-brother, Aristobulus, making her not only the wife, but the niece of both Philip and Herod, and a sister-in-law of Herod. All right, everybody tracking? Understand? I didn't think so. All right, so here is a, a family tree, okay? Now, this is, um, this is a twisted, just gross, perverted family tree, all right, so Herod the Great is up there up top. Um, Herod the Great was the Herod who was in charge when Jesus was born. Okay, so um, he, he was the Herod who the wise men came and talked to and who was upset. And, and he was what we call a megalomaniac. If you don't know what that means, he's kind of like a narcissistic dude who just cared about himself, his power, his prestige, his rule, his reign. And he had ten wives, um, and four of them gave him children. So you'll see the first generation there of his children, um, and Herod Antipas was the second oldest of his children, and so um, he became the ruler of Galilee after Herod the Great passed away in 4 BC. Now, you'll see that um, Herod Philip was another son and the half-brother of Herod Antipas and Archelaus, was uh, Herod Philip and Herodias were married, but they got divorced, and but before they got divorced, they had Salome, which is their daughter, and so um, that's what the, the girl, you heard dancing in the story, that's who the girl was, all right, so go to the next slide. Um, This right here will give you a good picture of just the region and who's in charge of the region. So after Herod the Great passes away um, in his will, he told Rome, he said, I want this to happen because Rome is across the sea. And he was like, this is my dying wish, that my kingdom would be broken down into these people to rule. So here is Salome, not the Salome in the story, but one of his daughters one of Herod the Great's daughters. Told you a super weird story. This is Salome the First. We hear Salome the Second in the story. So she gets the Gaza Strip, that area right there. That's where she gets to rule. Um, Judea, that is um, Archelaus, Herod Archelaus. And then right above him was Herod Antipas. And then to the northeast of Galilee was uh, Herod Philip. So those are the guys who are in charge. Um, Herod uh, Archelaus was a really bad dude, and he was really bad at his job, and he killed a lot of people, and nobody trusted him. And so he only reigned for like six years, and then Rome took him out. And guess who they put in his place? Pontius Pilate to rule the area of Judea. And Herod Antipas is the guy who is in the story tonight. So, this is a super weird family tree. It's very divisive, a lot of incest, a lot of adultery, a lot of divorce, a lot of sin going on. I was talking with the elders before service this evening, and one of the best descriptions I could describe this family is sin makes you stupid. Sin just makes you do stupid things, right? And so, what we see in this text is very, um, I guess you could say Herodias was sleazy. She was a sleazy woman um, and she was sleeping with her brother-in-law and leaves her husband to marry her uncle. Sounds pretty gross, right? Uh, She's basically another Jezebel. If you recall from first Kings 18, uh, the God contest, Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh versus the prophet of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? If you don't have this book, you need to get in your library. There's a picture of this book. Um, And it's, It's incredible. It's a great book. You need to read it um, for yourself and to your children. Uh, In verse 18, we learn about John the Baptist calling out Herod and Herodias' sinful relationship. So John was not afraid to hold those in power to God's sexual ethic and God's design for marriage. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth when it wasn't popular or when he could get in trouble, right? And this is a wonderful example, I think, of a man— who was unashamed of standing on the word of God in the face of people who were not honoring God's intention for marriage, right? God's good design for marriage. And I think we should, as believers in 2024, pause and be like, we need to take a note out of John's book here, right? We need to to take a, a page and say, hey, John had a point here. He stood strong when covenant Christian marriage was on the line When we live in a culture that hates God's, that hates God, period, but that hates God's design for marriage, we need to take a stand. Take a stand for marriage. Take a stand uh, for something that is sacred, that it's a holy union that God orchestrated, that God designed, that he put together for his glory and for our good. For one biological male to come together with one biological female, for life, For that union to be a beautiful picture of Jesus and his church, right? That is the most important thing about marriage. But if you believe that, today, you'll get laughed at and mocked and ridiculed and called narrow-minded, and people might hate you and want to cancel you. But John stood strong and proclaimed the truth no matter the consequences. And because of this... He got some people who didn't like him. And number one on the blacklist was Herodias, right? Herodias wanted John dead. And this echoes Jezebel's hatred for Elijah after all of the prophets of Baal died. Jezebel wanted Elijah to be gone, and Herodias wants John to be exterminated. But she couldn't have what she wanted because Herod feared John. In verse 20, it's fascinating. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. How did he keep him safe? He put him in prison. That's an interesting way to keep somebody safe. But he knew his wife. Do You think there was a trusting marriage? He knew his wife was going to hire a hitman to kill John, so the safest place for John was in prison. And Herod Antipas loved listening to John. It says that he heard him. Although he was perplexed, he heard him gladly. Right, so Herod's conscience was a little pricked, right? He knew, he knew that he wasn't living right. He also knew that John was a preacher of the truth and that he shined light into the darkness. And whenever people are li- living in the darkness, they're scared of the light, although they're intrigued by it. Herod feared John's godly lifestyle, but he was drawn to his message even though he was perplexed, is what the passage says. It says he's confused, he's troubled, but he, he doesn't understand, but he enjoys listening to him. So you can listen with joy and your life can bear no fruit. You can listen to the gospel and you cannot be changed. It was true back then. It was true today. right? Herod's problem wasn't that he feared John, It's that he didn't fear the Lord. He feared man more than he feared God. Herod never moved beyond John's message to John's master. He was focused so much on John that he didn't focus on Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, It can be easy to hear and admire a preacher while the preacher's master remains unknown. The scene in verse 21 is elaborate. It's the who's who of the time, and this is Herod's birthday party, and it was a birthday party only for dudes. So you know how when, you, when you're younger, you usually have parties, and you just invite your gender? Well, Herod is a grown person, and he just invited his gender. He said, only dudes are coming to my birthday party, and it's all the leading men of the region. And then we learn that Herodias's daughter, Salome, remember this is the daughter of Philip and Herodias, also known as Herod's niece and stepdaughter. Think about that. It's twisted. This girl comes in to the party and dances for those in attendance. Now, Salome is the entertainment for Herod and his guest. And apparently, she really pleased him. Now, we don't know what in the world that means. We don't have any details about what it means. But since Herodias saw this as an opportune time, we do know that that she saw something that she could get that she wanted from her husband. Scholars agree that she sent Salome to take advantage of the room, take advantage of the opportunity. One commentator said the dance that she performed displayed the loose morals both herself and her mother, for it was meant to be shocking, provocative, and sensual. And it says that it worked. Herod was pleased. and He tells her, you can have whatever you want, up to half of the kingdom, which is, pretty braggadocious considering he didn't even have a kingdom. He wasn't considered a king from Rome. He was just a tetrarch. He was the ruler of the fourth of the kingdom of his father. So he wasn't even a king. So he didn't, he couldn't even do this. But his oath was more like a lavish display of his pride, right? And of his power and prestige in front of his guests. So Salome wants to capitalize on the offer. So she fawns a friend her wicked mother. Herodias sees this as the opportunity to get what she wants, John's blood. Now, I want you to just pause for a second and think about how messed up the situation is. Think about how sick of a mother-daughter relationship this is, right? Mom doesn't say, oh, sweetie, that's great. Dad said you could have um, anything you want. What about some new clothes? Some jewelry, maybe a new pony, maybe a goat named Reggie. I don't know, you know? She, didn't, she doesn't suggest any of that. No, she says, murder. I want the death of John the Baptist. I want his head. And the daughter decides in verse 25 to embellish the request and to make it immediate, to make it urgent, to make it elaborate, bring it on a platter, have it done right now. Because evil people seek the blood of their enemies for their own pleasure. This is two pretty wicked people operating right here. So quickly, the party goes from frivol- frivolous, frivolous, I think that's a, is that the word word? Frivolous? Frivolous. That's a, I like frivolous. No, we're going to use frivolous. Frivolous to frightful. Fritos. Okay, it goes from fun, I can say that one, to frightful. Really quickly, look, Herod sobers up real fast. It says that he was exceedingly sorry, for he hears of the request, and he was shocked. He realized he was taken advantage of. Can you imagine what his guests were like, like when they heard her come back in and make this request? Were they like, were they taken off guard? Were they shocked? Were they disgusted? Or were they kind of like, oh yeah, I'm I'm bloodthirsty too. Let's see somebody get killed. That's just kind of weird, right? But I think what we can learn here from this passage, we could see that there is a stark contrast between Herod Antipas and John the Baptist, right? John was a hairy-coated prophet. Herod, a royal-robed ruler, John was an ascetic and a simple lifestyle he led. Herod was flamboyant and ornate. John was righteous. Herod was debaucherous. John was a prophet without price. Herod was a man who could be bought. John had moral courage. Herod was a spineless coward. John lived with a clear conscience. Herod suffered with a troubled conscience. John was a man of the spirit. Herod was a man of the flesh. John loved and introduced people to Jesus. Herod tried to use and exploit Jesus for personal gain later. John maintained his integrity and lost his head. Herod forfeited his integrity and lost his soul. These men could not be more different. How many men today do you know whose name is Herod? How many Johns do you know? A lot, right? Hardly any parents today want to name their kid Herod for a reason. John was firm. Herod was vacillating. John was a man that lived with conviction and resolve. Herod waffled and was weak. And he sought to save face in front of his friends at the party. Instead of doing the right thing. The evil request is granted for John's head to be removed from his body. The deed is done. John is dead. The death of a preacher of God's word. John pays the ultimate price. The greatest of all men, according to Jesus, is beheaded because of a sinful, passive ruler, a hateful, bitter woman, and a sensual, foolish little girl faithfulness to Jesus, preaching the word, standing up for what is right could cost you your head. John gives his life for the gospel. So what is the cost of discipleship? I think you could say the, the price of discipleship is your life. It's complete and utter devotion and surrender to Jesus. Jesus demands your all, not just a little bit, but your all. Serving the Lord will always cost you something, but I can guarantee you'll never regret it. As the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's a few lessons we can learn from John the Baptist's life. John lived his life introducing others to Jesus. John was laser focused on the mission of God, and we should be too. John unapologetically proclaimed the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ. John was bold in calling out sinful behavior, and we should be too. John stayed faithful till the end. He finished strong. And John shows us that true discipleship is self-denial and self-sacrifice. He's a wonderful model of how we should live today. It could be argued, I believe, that it's easier to die for Christ than to live for him. If someone had a gun or a sword to your head and said, if you don't deny Jesus right now, I'll kill you. That's one thing, right? Most of us won't find ourselves in that situation. But if we do, I pray that we would be willing to die for the sake of his great name. Death in that situation is instant. But what is harder, I believe, is living day by day, dying to yourself daily, When I became a a follower of Jesus, I was 17, and a few years after that, um, I was introduced to uh, the band DC Talk, as you well know. Um, Also, there was a book that came out called Jesus Freaks, Voice of the Martyrs, and I loved reading those stories. There were stories of martyrs throughout uh, the centuries, and I used to actually want to be a martyr for Jesus, But I learned that I had glamorized that idea of being a martyr for Christ, and what I actually wanted was for people to think good of me if I did die for Christ. I didn't want to have to deny myself daily, to die to myself daily, to take up my cross daily, and to follow Jesus daily, moment by moment, and to grind through life pursuing holiness. And I realized It's actually harder to live for Jesus than to die for him. Jesus would actually stand before this same Herod Antipas at the end of his life when he was arrested and standing trial. And he would say not one word to this man who killed John the Baptist. Earlier, Jesus said when he was referring to Herod Antipas that he was a fox, a cunning, a sly man that he was like a reed blowing in the wind, swaying back and forth between the winds of political whims, wherever they might flow, that's where he would go, for his own personal gain, very selfish. Jesus would not entertain him, wouldn't respond to him, and would be mocked and ridiculed by him and sent back to Pontius Pilate. John's life and death was a forerunner to Jesus' arrest Sham treatment, vacillating rulers, injustice, murder, and burial. John stayed dead, even though Herod thought that he'd come back to life. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And we're going to close with words from Jesus about discipleship that we will read and study later in Mark 8. Jesus said this, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your great plan of sending not only your Son to this earth, but for sending John the Baptist to make a way to cry out, and pave the way for your Son, the truly great prophet, priest, and king, who is the way, the truth, and the life. John clearly said, I am not the Christ. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are worthy of not only our worship, that you are worthy of our very lives. And I pray that we would be like John the Baptist tonight, and we would say, less of me, more of you, Jesus. May we deny ourselves. May we take up our cross daily. May we follow you. And may we realize that the cost of discipleship is Us being all in, total, completely surrendered to you. Because you are God alone and worthy of all praise, honor, and worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.